0: microphone wound up Bring down there, I can get a grip on it. And that's tragic. Hello, Mark. This It's March 30th, actually March 31st. Sunday night, Monday morning. Cozumel, Mexico. So it's here in Acapulco. Some kind of headline. Blaze, uh, vicious subhead. Right here, it's, uh, I don't know what time it is, sometime in the early morning. Right here in the light, bar, shot weird, you know, the truck of a huge crowd and all kidding is there is a horrible picture. So, well, here's the first symptom that's got damn evil drug. Uh
1: Welcome to Hunter's Thompson Breakdown on Weird Street, Episode 1. Hell's Angels, the strange and terrible saga of the outlaw motorcycle gang. Uh, my name is Jason thank you for joining me. This episode, we will be discussing Hunter S. Thompson's early years in a bio timeline. Then we will move on to cover 1967's Hell's Angels. We will then conclude with a passage from Hunter's writing that has correlation to current day issues. Uh, With that out of the way, let's get started with Hunter's biographical timeline. Hunter was born into a middle-class family in Louisville, Kentucky, the first of three sons born of Virginia Davison Ray, who worked as a head librarian, and Jack Robert Thompson, a public insurance adjuster and World War I veteran. His parents were introduced by a friend from Jack's fraternity at the University of Kentucky in September 1934 and were married on November 2, 1935 journalist nicholas lazard stated that thompson's first name hunter came from an ancestor on his mother's side the scottish surgeon john hunter a more direct attribution is that thompson's first name and middle name hunter stockton came from his maternal grandparents presley stockton ray and lucille hunter in december 1943 when hunter was six years old The family settled into an affluent cherokee triangle neighborhood of the highlands on june 3rd 1952 when thompson was 14 his father died at the age of 58 hunter and his brothers were raised by their their mother virginia who worked as a librarian she was described as a heavy drinker following her husband's death interested in sports and athletically inclined at a young age hunter co-founded the hawks athletic club while attending bloom elementary school which led to an invitation to join Louisville's Castlewood Athletic Club for adolescents that prepared them for high school sports. Ultimately, he never joined a sports team in high school. Thompson attended I.N. Bloom Elementary School, Highland Middle School, and Atherton High School before transferring to Louisville Male High School in fall of 1952. Also in 1952, he was accepted as a member of the Athenaeum Literary Association, a school-sponsored literary and social club that dated to 1862. Its members at the time came from Louisville's upper-class families and included Porter Bibb, who became the first publisher of Rolling Stone. During the time, Thompson read and admired J.P. Don Levy's The Ginger Man. Thompson contributed articles and helped produce the club's yearbook, The Spectator. The group ejected Thompson in 1955 for criminal activities. Charged as an accessory to robbery, after being in, a, in the car with the perpetrator, Hunter was sent, sentenced to 60 days in Kentucky's Jefferson County Jail. While he was in jail, the school superintendent refused permission to, for him to take his high school final examinations, so he was unable to graduate. He served 31 days and a week after his release he enlisted in the United States Air Force that's where we'll leave hunters biological timeline for this episode uh, this week's main topic Hells Angels was the second Hunter S Thompson book I've read after fear and loathing in Las Vegas it's an amazing book that is a true precursor to actual gonzo journalism although it does contain the elements of author participation necessary; it lacks the imagination and extreme exaggeration of capital G Gonzo journalism. Let's get to our main topic.
0: Shoot, it's only eleven o'clock here. It seems to me like about seven in the morning. Dealing with this kind of thing is really more than. Now human being to be expected to possess. It's, it's a situation where in uh, oh, several hundred people here, I can't tell how many in the darkness you don't know. And uh, perhaps 30 or 40 know who I am. Therefore, uh, I get a lot of head and shit, uh, shrugs, uh, bullshit, bad answers, that sort of thing from uh most people I run into, because I obviously look different, I'm wearing this Montana Sheepherders jacket. The moment I'm wearing my red uh, L.L. Bean hat, which I don't intend to wear I'm in a circle. But, uh, you know, I have my uh, Wellingtons on, nobody remember wears Wellingtons. And uh, Pendleton shirt, uh, just, it's all different. And the people who don't know me, uh, not only resent me, but uh, worry about me. The, uh, the situation doesn't fit them. They're either more guilty than they uh, really are, you know, by the law, or they're less guilty. Than they are like there we go. It's obvious now that uh, this is a very peculiar situation for the town of Bass Lake, the resort area of Bass Lake, to to handle. And yet the Angels are so far not guilty of anything. They're uh, a bunch of uh, good, fun-loving American lads out riding the motorcycles around the uh, state and having a good time out here for a 4th of July camping trip. But there's so much more to it that the law simply does not cover. And apparently the injunction up here that this weekend was an attempt to breach that gap where they were prohibited from doing. Uh, anything and so far they've done nothing we've been here uh, about 12 hours and uh, everybody's drunk now and there have been a hundred drunken hell's angels around this within 100 yards of the car within 50 yards of the car and the fine far is about 25 yards away i got to come into the car to do any taping because uh, the sight of this thing would uh, drive them to madness they'd uh, burn the machine
1: Hell's Angels, the Strange and Terrible Saga of the Outlaw Motorcycle Gangs. It began as an article, The Motorcycle Gangs, Losers and Outsiders for the May 17, 1965 issue of The Nation. In March, 1965, The Nation's editor, Carrie McWilliams, wrote to Hunter and offered to pay him for an article on the subject of motorcycle gangs and the Hell's Angels in particular. Hunter took the job and the article, published about a month later, prompted book offers from several publishers interested in the topic. Hunter spent the next year preparing for the new book in close co- quarters with the Hells Angels, in particular, the Hells Angels San Francisco and Oakland chapters, and their club president, Ralph Sonny Barger. Hunter was upfront with the Angels about his role as a journalist, a dangerous, a dangerous move given their marked distrust of reporters, what the club considered to be bad press. Hunter was introduced to the gang by Bernie Jarvis, a former club member and then police beat reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. This introduction, coming from an angel and a reporter, allowed Hunter to get close to the gang in ways others had not been able to. Hunter remained close with the Hells Angels for a year, but ultimately the relationship waned. It ended for good after several members of the gang gave him a savage beating or stomping over a remark Hunter had made to an angel named Junkie George, who was beating his wife and kicking his dog.
2: Here came the peacemaker, right? He doesn't have a patch on, he isn't in the club, you know? And Junkie George is stiff. You you walked right up to him and you said, only a punk beats his wife and dog. These were your words. Now, you said it, you said it to this man, and you backed up, he finished and he an said, order. Hunter, you want you want some of this? And you said no, but you got it anyway. And when he hit you, three or four others of them hit you too. Well, you when got in your car and you left. And that's when in your book you said you found Magoo asleep in the back of your car, so you stopped and he got out. But yeah. the next day, if you'd have had any guts after living with all of these people, you'd have come back up there, had a beer, and sat down with everybody and said, all right, I made a mistake. Or somebody made a mistake, so what? Let's have a drink. We've never seen you since.
0: Well, why don't you finish? We've never
2: seen our two All kegs right. of beer and we've never seen our book.
0: You, you're finished. Are you finished? I was talking to Fripp, it was about three in the morning, and we were talking about uh, whether my uh, BSA 650 would run with his, uh, his chopper. And we were kind of comparing, you know, the ratios and top speeds and roads. And I was watching, what's his name, what, Junkie George? I don't know who, I didn't know the guy. But there was somebody about thirty feet to my left beating his wife to a pulp on the rocks. And I thought well that's you know kind of ugly, but that's the way the that's the way the game's played this time. If he'd
2: beating her that bad, somebody would have stopped
0: him. Uh. Oh no, don't don't nah. you were, You're kidding me and you're gonna kid everybody else. No, nobody stopped him, and you know he beat his wife up. You just said it, right? He was beating his wife. Okay, up. I mean, he, he wasn't on
2: the ground with a big rock or something, you know.
0: No, no, oh no. Oh, he, she was lying on the rocks you and know, he, uh, he was giving her this, you know. To keep
2: a woman in line, you gotta beat him like a rug once in a while, you know. Well <laughs>
1: So that's uh, Where We'll Leave Hunter, kind of uh, a little bloody and beaten by the Hells Angels. I really can't recommend that book enough. Truly, truly great journalism. Uh, parts of it take, takes place uh, at Weir's Beach, which is uh, very close to where I grew up, so I can recognize some of the landmarks he's actually writing about. So with uh, that being said, let's move on to this episode's reading selection. In this episode's uh, reading selection, we're going to be reading from *Hey Rube*, *Bloodsport*, *The Bush Doctrine*, and *The Downward Spiral of Dumbness*. So this is uh, one of this is Hunter's last uh, book outside of compilations and stuff. So this is copyright 2004. And I'm going to just read the author's note or a portion of the author's note because I think it kind of sums up the book. And I think we can also kind of find a sort of solace or maybe understanding of the times around us just from the author's note of this. Author's note. It is no accident that this column is titled hey rube that is what's called my standing head in the arcane jargon of journalism and it will not change anytime soon hey rube is an old-timey phrase coined in the merciless culture of the traveling carnival gangs that roamed from town to town in the early 20th century every stop on the circuit was just another chance to fleece another crowd of free spending rubes suckers Hicks, Yokels, Johns, Fish, Marks, Burns, Losers, day traders in Portland, fools who buy diamonds from gypsies, and anyone over the age of nine in this country who still believes in his heart that all cops are honest and would never lie in a courtroom. These people are everywhere. They are legion, soon to be a majority, and 10,000 more are being born every day, It was P.T. Barnum, the circus man, who explained the real secret of his vast commercial success. By repeating his now famous motto, there's a sucker born every minute in this country, and his job was to keep them amused, which he did with a zeal that has never been equaled in the history of American show business. Barnum knew what people wanted, freaks, clowns, and wild animals. The Barnum Bailey Circus came to town Only once a year, and those days were marked as sacred holidays on the John Deere calendars of every rube in America. Those dates were special. Many schools closed when the circus came to town, and not every student returned when the public frenzy was over. Running away with the circus was the dream of every schoolboy and the nightmare of every mother with a bored and beautiful daughter. Pearl Harbor was 60 years ago before we had TV and computers to keep us totally informed. When half the US Navy was destroyed by Japanese bombs, at least we knew who did it and where they lived. And that news was spread all over the world in a matter of minutes with eyewitness accounts and photos of burning battleships. What has gone wrong with our communication system since then? Why are we more ignorant and less informed today than we were in 1941? That's an eerie question, eh? You bet it is. If World War III can start in a vacuum of silence and stonewalling by the White House, we are doomed like rats in a maze of fear. We are slave to mendacity and hostile disinformation. Bread and circuses were not enough to sustain the Roman Empire, and they will not be enough for the United States of America. That's just half of the uh, author's notes, and uh, as I was reading through it, I can definitely um, feel Hunter's presence in today's world, as I often do, which is why I feel it it uh, is very important to look beyond what most people think of when they think of Hunter S. Thompson. That would be like fear and loathing in Las Vegas and uh, massive drug and alcohol intake, but there's... A There's uh, amazing political and social uh, writings beyond just fear and loathing. Uh, So that's where I will leave this episode. Please join me next time where we'll move on in Hunter's biographical timeline. We will also read uh, and discuss some of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas because it is next chronologically. And obviously has merit. And we'll be reading another selection that I have not chosen yet. Thanks. See you next time.